0: Chapter 7, Part 1 of the Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 7 Buenos Aires and Santa Fe Excursion to Santa Fe, Thistle Beds, Habits of the Viscaca, Little Owl. Saline Streams, Level Plain, Mastodon, Santa Fe, Change in Landscape, Geology, Tooth of Extinct Horse, Relation of the Fossil and Recent Quadrupeds of North and South America, Effects of a Great Drought, Parana, Habits of the Jaguar, Scissor Beak, Kingfisher, Parrot, and Scissor Tail, Revolution, Buenos Aires State of Government. September 27th. In the evening I set out on an excursion to Santa Fe, which is situated nearly three hundred English miles from Buenos Aires, on the banks of the Parana. The roads in the neighborhood of the city after the rainy weather were extraordinarily bad. I should never have thought it possible for a bullock wagon to have crawled along as it was. They scarcely went at the rate of a mile an hour, and a man was kept ahead to survey the best line for making the attempt. The bullocks were terribly jaded. It is a great mistake to suppose that with improved roads and an accelerated rate of traveling, the sufferings of the animals increase in the same proportion. We passed a train of wagons and a group of beasts on their road to Mendoza. The distance is about 580 geographical miles, and the journey is generally performed in 50 days. These wagons are very long, narrow, and thatched with reeds. They have only two wheels, the diameter of which in some cases is as much as 10 feet. Each is drawn by six bullocks, which are urged on by a goad at least twenty feet long. This is suspended from within the roof. For the wheel bullocks, a smaller one is kept, and for the intermediate pair, a point projects at right angles from the middle of the long one. The whole apparatus looked like some implement of war. September 28th. We passed the small town of Luxan, where there is a wooden bridge over the river, a most unusual convenience in this country. We passed also Reco. The plains appeared level, but were not so, in fact, for in various places the horizon was distant. The estanchas are here wide apart, for there is little good pasture, owing to the land being covered by beds either of an acrid clover or of the great thistle. The latter, well known from the animated description given by Sir F. Head, were at this time of the year two-thirds grown. In some parts they were as high as the horse's back, but in others they had not yet sprung up, and the ground was bare and dusty as on a turnpike road. The clumps were of the most brilliant green, and they made a pleasing miniature likeness of broken forest land. When the thistles are full grown, the great beds are impenetrable, except by a few tracks as intricate as those in a labyrinth. These are only known to the robbers, who at this season inhabit them, and sally forth at night to rob and cut throats with impunity. Upon asking at a house whether robbers were numerous, I was answered, the thistles are not up yet. The meaning of which reply was not at first very obvious. There is little interest in passing over these tracks, for they are inhabited by few animals or birds, excepting the viscacha and its friend, the little owl. The viscacha is well known to form a prominent feature in the zoology of the pampas. Footnote. The viscacha, Legostomus trichodactylus, somewhat resembles a large rabbit, but with bigger gnawing teeth and a long tail. It has, however, only three toes behind, like the agouti. During the last three or four years, the skins of these animals have been sent to England for the sake of the fur. It is found as far south as the Rio Negro, in latitude 41 degrees, but not beyond. It cannot, like the Aguti, subsist on the gravelly and desert plains of Patagonia, but prefers a clayey or sandy soil, which produces a different and more abundant vegetation. Near Mendoza, at the foot of the Cordillera, it occurs in close neighborhood with the allied alpine species. It is a very curious circumstance in its geographical distribution that it has never been seen, fortunately for the inhabitants of the Banda Oriental, to the eastward of the river Uruguay. Yet in this province there are plains which appear admirably adapted to its habits. The Uruguay has formed an insuperable obstacle to its migration, although the broader barrier of the Parana has been passed, and the Vizcaca is common in Entre Rios, the province between these two great rivers. Near Buenos Aires these animals are exceedingly common. Their most favorite resort appears to be those parts of the plain which during one half of the year are covered with giant thistles, to the exclusion of other plants. The Gauchos affirm that it lives on roots, which, from the great strength of its gnawing teeth and the kind of places frequented by it, seems probable. In the evening the Viscacas come out in numbers, and quietly sit at the mouths of their burrows on their haunches. At such times they are very tame, and a man on horseback passing by seems only to present an object for their grave contemplation. They run very awkwardly, and when running out of danger, from their elevated tails and short front legs much resemble great rats. Their flesh, when cooked, is very white and good, but it is seldom used. The viscacha has one singular habit, namely, dragging every hard object to the mouth of its burrow. Around each group of holes, many bones of cattle, stones, thistle stalks, hard lumps of earth, dry dung, etc., are collected into an irregular heap, which frequently amounts to as much as a wheelbarrow could contain. I was credibly informed that a gentleman, when riding on a dark night, dropped his watch. He returned in the morning, and by searching the neighborhood of every Viscaka hall on the line of the road, as he expected, he soon found it. This habit of picking up whatever may be lying on the ground anywhere near its habitation must cost much trouble. For what purpose it is done, I am quite unable to form even the most remote conjecture. It cannot be for defense. Because the rubbish is chiefly placed above the mouth of the burrow, which enters the ground at a very small inclination. No doubt there must exist some good reason, but the inhabitants of the country are quite ignorant of it. The only fact which I know analogous to it is the habit of that extraordinary Australian bird, the Calidera maculata, which makes an elegant vaulted passage of twigs for playing in, and which collects near the spot land and sea shells, bones and the feathers of birds, especially bright coloured ones. Mr. Gould, who has described these facts, informs me that the natives, when they lose any hard object, search the playing passages, and he has known a tobacco-pipe thus recovered. The little owl, Athene cunicularia, which has been so often mentioned on the plains of Buenos Aires, exclusively inhabits the holes of the Viscaca, but in Banda Oriental it is its own workman. During the open day, but more especially in the evening, these birds may be seen in every direction, standing frequently by pairs on the hillock near their burrows. If disturbed, they either enter the hole, or, uttering a shrill, harsh cry, move with a remarkable undulatory flight to a short distance, and then, turning round, steadily gaze at their pursuer. Occasionally in the evening they may be heard hooting. I found in the stomachs of two which I opened the remains of mice, and one day saw a small snake killed and carried away. It is said that snakes are their common prey during the daytime. I may mention here, as showing on what various kinds of food owls subsist, that a species killed among the islets of the Chonos Archipelago had its stomach full of good-sized crabs. In India there is a fishing genus of owls, which likewise catches crabs. In the evening we crossed the rio Aracife on a simple raft made of barrels lashed together, and slept at the post-house on the other side. I this day paid horse hire for thirty-one leagues, and although the sun was glaring hot, I was but little fatigued. When Captain Head talks of riding fifty leagues a day, I do not imagine the distance is equal to one hundred fifty English miles. At all events, the thirty-one leagues was only seventy-six miles in a straight line, and in an open country I should think four additional miles for turnings would be a sufficient allowance. Twenty-ninth and 30th We continue to ride over plains of the same character. At San Nicolás I first saw the noble river of the Parana. At the foot of the cliff on which the town stands, some large vessels were at anchor. Before arriving at Rosario, we crossed the Saladillo, a stream of fine, clear running water, but too saline to drink. Rosario is a large town built on a dead-level plain, which forms a cliff about sixty feet high over the Parana. The river here is very broad, with many islands, which are low and wooded, as is also the opposite shore. The view would resemble that of a large lake, if it were not for the linear-shaped islets, which alone give the idea of running water. The cliffs are the most picturesque part. Sometimes they are absolutely perpendicular and of a red color, at other times in large broken masses, covered with cacti and mimosa trees. The real grandeur, however, of an immense river like this, is derived from reflecting how important a means of communication and commerce it forms between one nation and another, to what a distance it travels and from how vast a territory it drains the great body of fresh water which flows past your feet. For many leagues north and south of San Nicolas and Rosario the country is really level scarcely anything which travelers have written about its extreme flatness can be considered as exaggeration yet i could never find a spot where by slowly turning round objects were not seen at greater distances in some directions than in others and this manifestly proves inequality in the plain. At sea, a person's eye being six feet above the surface of the water, his horizon is two miles and four fifths distant. In like manner, the more level the plain, the more nearly does the horizon approach within these narrow limits, and this, in my opinion, entirely destroys that grandeur which one would have imagined that a vast level plain would have possessed. October first We started by moonlight and arrived at the Rio Tesero by sunrise. The river is also called the Saladillo, and it deserves the name, for the water is brackish. I stayed here the greater part of the day, searching for fossil bones. Besides a perfect tooth of the Toxodon, and many scattered bones, I found two immense skeletons near each other, projecting in bold relief from the perpendicular cliff of the Parana. They were, however, so completely decayed, that I could only bring away small fragments of one of the great molar teeth, but these are sufficient to show that the remains belong to a mastodon, probably to the same species with that which formerly must have inhabited the Cordillera in upper Peru in such great numbers. The men who took me in the canoe said that they had long known of these skeletons, and had often wondered how they had got there. The necessity of a theory being felt, they came to the conclusion that, like the viscacha, the mastodon was formerly a burrowing animal. In the evening we rode another stage, and crossed the Monga, another brackish stream, bearing the dregs of the washings of the pampas. October 2nd. We passed through Corinda, which, from the luxuriance of its gardens, was one of the prettiest villages I saw. From this point to Santa Fe the road is not very safe. The western side of the Parana northward ceases to be inhabited, and hence the Indians sometimes come down thus far and waylay travellers. The nature of the country also favours this, for instead of a grassy plain there is an open woodland composed of low, prickly mimosas. We passed some houses that had been ransacked and since deserted. We saw also a spectacle, which my guides viewed with high satisfaction. It was the skeleton of an Indian, with the dried skin hanging on its bones, suspended to the branch of a tree. In the morning we arrived at Santa Fe. I was surprised to observe how great a change of climate a difference of only three degrees of latitude between this place and Buenos Aires had caused. This was evident from the dress and complexion of the men, from the increased size of the umbu trees, the number of new cacti and other plants, and especially from the birds. In the course of an hour I remarked half a dozen birds, which I had never seen at Buenos Aires. Considering that there is no natural boundary between the two places, and that the character of the country is nearly similar, the difference was much greater than I should have expected. October 3rd and 4th I was confined for these two days to my bed by a headache. A good-natured old woman who attended me wished me to try many odd remedies. A common practice is to bind an orange leaf or a bit of black plaster to each temple, and a still more general plan is to split a bean into halves, moisten them, and place one on each temple where they will easily adhere. It is not thought proper ever to remove the beans or plaster, but to allow them to drop off. And sometimes, if a man with patches on his head is asked, what is the matter, he will answer, I had a headache the day before yesterday. Many of the remedies used by the people of the country are ludicrously strange, but too disgusting to be mentioned. One of the least nasty is to kill and cut open two puppies and bind them on either side of a broken limb. Little hairless dogs are in great request to sleep at the feet of invalids. Santa Fe is a quiet little town and is kept clean and in good order. The governor, Lopez, was a common soldier at the time of the Revolution, but has now been seventeen years in power. This stability of government is owing to his tyrannical habits, for tyranny seems as yet better adapted to these countries than republicanism. The governor's favorite occupation is hunting Indians. A short time since, he slaughtered forty-eight and sold the children at the rate of three or four pounds apiece. October 5th. We crossed the Piranha to Santa Fe, Bahadá, a town on the opposite shore. The passage took some hours, as the river here consisted of a labyrinth of small streams separated by low wooded islands. I had a letter of introduction to an old Catalonian Spaniard, who treated me with the most uncommon hospitality. The Bahadá is the capital of André Ríos. In 1825 the town contained 6,000 inhabitants and the province 30,000, yet, few as the inhabitants are, no province has suffered from more bloody and desperate revolutions. They boast here of representatives, ministers, a standing army, and governors, so it is no wonder that they have their revolutions. At some future day, this must be one of the richest colonies of La Plata. The soil is varied and productive, and its most insular form gives it two grand lines of communication by the rivers Paraná and Uruguay. I was delayed here five days, and employed myself in examining the geology of the surrounding country, which was very interesting. We here see at the bottom of the cliffs beds containing sharks' teeth and seashells of extinct species, passing above into an indurated marl, and from that into the red clayey earth of the Pampas, with its calcareous concretions and the bones of terrestrial quadrupeds. This vertical section clearly tells us of a large bay of pure salt water, gradually encroached on and at last converted into the bed of a muddy estuary, into which floating carcasses were swept. At Punta Gorda, in Banda Oriental, I found an alternation of the Pampian estuary deposit, with a limestone containing some of the same extinct seashells and this shows either a change in the former currents, or more probably an oscillation of level in the bottom of the ancient estuary. Until recently, my reasons for considering the Pampian Formation to be an estuary deposit were its general appearance, its position at the mouth of the existing great river the Plata, and the presence of so many bones of terrestrial quadrupeds. But now Professor Ehrenberg has had the kindness to examine for me a little of the red earth, taken from low down in the deposit, close to the skeletons of the mastodon, and he finds in it many infusoria, partly salt-water and partly fresh-water forms, with the latter rather preponderating, and therefore, as he remarks, the water must have been brackish. M. A. Dormigny found on the banks of the Parana at the height of a hundred feet, great beds of an estuary shell, now living a hundred miles lower down nearer the sea, and I found similar shells at a less height on the banks of the Uruguay, this shows that just before the pampas was slowly elevated into dry land, the water covering it was brackish. Below Buenos Aires, there are upraised beds of seashells of existing species, which also proves that the period of elevation of the pampas was within the recent period. In the Pampian deposit at the Bajada, I found the osseous armor of a gigantic armadillo-like animal, the inside of which, when the earth was removed, was like a great cauldron. I also found teeth of the Toxodon and Mastodon, and one tooth of a horse, in the same stained and decayed state. This latter tooth greatly interested me, and I took scrupulous care in ascertaining that it had been embedded contemporaneously with the other remains, for I was not then aware that amongst the fossils from Bahia Blanca there was a horse's tooth hidden in the matrix. Nor was it then known with certainty that the remains of horses are common in North America. Footnote I hardly need state here that there is good evidence against any horse living in America at the time of Columbus. Mr. Lyle has lately brought from the United States a tooth of a horse, and it is an interesting fact that Professor Owens could find in it no species, either fossil or recent, a slight but peculiar curvature characterizing it, until he thought of comparing it with my specimen found here. He has named this American horse Equus curvidens. Certainly it is a marvelous fact in the history of the Mammalia that in South America a native horse should have lived and disappeared, to be succeeded in after-ages by the countless herds descended from the few introduced by the Spanish colonists. The existence in South America of a fossil horse, of the mastodon, possibly of an elephant, and of a hollow-horned ruminant discovered by M. M. Lund and Clausen in the caves of Brazil are highly interesting facts with respect to the geographical distribution of animals. At the present time, if we divide America, not by the isthmus of Panama, but by the southern part of Mexico in latitude twenty degrees, where the great tableland presents an obstacle to the migration of species, by affecting the climate, and by forming, with the exception of some valleys and of a fringe of lowland on the coast, a broad barrier, we shall then have the two zoological provinces of North and South America strongly contrasted with each other. Footnote This is a geographical division followed by Lichtenstein, Swainson, Erickson, and Richardson. The section from Veracruz to Acapulco, given by Humboldt in the political essay on Kingdom of North Spain, will show how immense a barrier the Mexican tableland forms. Dr. Richardson, in his admirable report on the zoology of North America, read before the British Association, talking of the identification of a Mexican animal with the Sinotheres prehensilis, says, we do not know with what propriety, but if correct, it is, if not a solitary instance, at least very nearly so, of a rodent animal being common to North and South America. Some few species alone have passed the barrier, and may be considered as wanderers from the South, such as the puma, opossum, kinkajou, and picarri. South America is characterized by possessing many peculiar gnaws, a family of monkeys, the llama, picari, tapir, opossums and especially several genera of edentata, the order which includes the sloths, anteaters, and armadillos. North America, on the other hand, is characterized, putting on one side a few wandering species, by numerous peculiar gnaws and by four genera, the ox, sheep, goat, and antelope, of hollow-horned ruminants, of which great division South America is not known to possess a single species. Formerly, but within the period when most of the now-existing shells were living, North America possessed, besides hollow-horned ruminants, the elephant, mastodon, horse, and three genera of edentata, namely the megatherium, megalonyx, and mylodon. Within nearly this same period, as proved by the shells at Bahia Blanca, South America possessed, as we have just seen, a mastodon, horse, hollow-horned ruminant, and the same three genera, as well as several others, of the edentata. Hence, it is evident that North and South America In having within a late geological period these several genera in common were much more closely related in the character of their terrestrial inhabitants than they now are. The more I reflect on this case, the more interesting it appears. I know of no other instance where we can almost mark the period and manner of the splitting up of one great region into two well-characterized zoological provinces. The geologist, who is fully impressed with the vast oscillations of level which have affected the Earth's crust within late periods, will not fear to speculate on the recent elevation of the Mexican platform, or, more probably, on the recent submergence of land in the West Indian archipelago as the cause of the present zoological separation of North and South America. The South American character of the West Indian mammals seems to indicate that this archipelago was formerly united to the southern continent, and that it has subsequently been an area of subsidence. Footnote. Cuvier says the Kinkajou is found in the larger Antilles, but this is doubtful. M. Gervais states that the Didelphis crancivora is found there. It is certain that the West Indies possess some mammifers peculiar to themselves. A tooth of a mastodon has been brought from Bahama. End of chapter seven, part one.